Welcome to the Gregarious Mammal Podcast. This is Chris. And this is Kate. Hello, Kate. Hello, Chris. <laughs> so we've got quite a bit to cover today. We're going to have a bit of a link show and we're going to talk about a couple of the events we've been at. Yes. So let's kick off. Let's kick off with our little segment on kind of, uh, I guess this is on um, the work, workplaces, coding. I don't know. It's sort of... Topical issues in the media are about things that we find interesting. I yeah, and when we say topical, we have to be a bit precise to say some of these links are slightly old. <laughs> so, okay. Um, topical, of, of, but slightly out of date. <laughs> of interest to us and hopefully to some of our listeners. Exactly. Maybe that's Let's a way to look at it. get started with an article from VentureBeat on the four perks, in quote marks, that good developers really want. Um, I can guess what they are. Club Mate, a, pi- no, a table tennis table. Um, so, uh, a, maybe a, a you know a free lunch every now and again, and the odd no, the odd no. Uber. <laughs> actually, no. So this is the interesting thing. This is the point that I think a lot of recruiters, especially recruiters, external recruiters in companies, make this mistake. Agreed. <laughs> that you can just bribe people with free snacks, good good wages, and uh, bonuses and things like that. When actually. To be blunt, developers already get paid fairly well mm. and every company these days has free snacks and drinks. So what else is there? Yeah. And I would argue when I read down this list, it resonated very highly with me, which is why I was interested in this article. Uh, number one was give them a seat at the table. Yes. Uh, give them a say in the business. Agreed. Um, let people – obviously this is of the ones who want to, although I would argue that – Sometimes the ones who don't say anything do want a seat at the table as well. They just need a bit of encouragement. Hmm. So, yeah, get them involved in planning, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I don't know how well this works with uh, huge companies, and I guess you have to kind of figure out what table they get a seat at. You can't give everyone a seat at the top management table because that would be a very big table. But, you know, maybe you give them a seat at the immediate team table hmm. or the immediate department table or something like that. I think what you're saying is people want to be heard and people want exactly. to feel as though they're contributing to yep. the um, direction of a business that they're exactly. helping shape. They're the ones exactly. behind the creating the product a lot of the time. Now, slightly counterintuitive to that comment, um, but I feel like it's part of the, the same thing in some respects is number two is allow them to build a personal brand. Again, those who want to. So uh, whilst number one was about letting them feel part of the company, number two is more about let them feel part of their community. Uh, Let them speak at conferences. Let them contribute to open source projects, write blog posts that may or may not be attached to your company, but you should feel confident that um, it doesn't matter so much. Mm. Uh, And this is actually all of these really resonate with me. This is something that's important to me. My what I accomplish with my expertise outside of its direct impact on a company has always been very important to me. And it's certainly been a very mixed bag of employers for me that let me do this and mm-hmm. felt comfortable with letting me do this. Hmm. Any thoughts on that one? Yeah, I think I think you're spot on. I mean, people want to feel that they're um, part of their part of their role is not just what they do for an organisation, but their growth and their skill set as a person and Part of it, you know, being able to experience things like attending conferences, writing papers, participating in um, panels and all that sort of stuff is exactly. part of that um, job development, professional development. Yeah. And then um, I guess these all follow quite nicely. 
you give them a seat at the table, you let them be part of their community. And number three is give them opportunities to innovate. Um, innovation comes from all places. Uh, let developers try new ideas, that kind of idea of 20% time and things like that. But let, you know, don't be too worried if a developer sometimes spends half a day in quote marks, wasting time on something. It could be that that leads to better ideas further down the line. Who knows? But is is this not a standard practice in startups these days? Um, I guess early stage startups, everyone's innovating all the time. I True. suppose it's more when... So, I mean, I worked at a company where the whole engineering department at a point realized we needed to improve the user experience of the product before we added any more features. So mm -hmm. everyone was pulled into innovating on different aspects. And this was a considered effort from the whole company to do that. Um, but it, yeah, I think it's that whole 20% time hackathons, things like that. Just let developers like to try new technologies. And sometimes you just want to try them for no particular reason. Um, just to try them and let them do that. I guess ideas can come from left of center, you know, mm, very true. And then finally, I guess this fits very nicely to number one, make sure everyone feels like they belong. Mm. Um, this is not just as part of kind of the development of the product, but also, yeah, and this is something that you have brought up several times. Diversity and inclusiveness are not just about gender and race. They can be about attitudes, interests. Not everyone wants to go and drink beer all night. Not everyone wants to go and do go-karting, you know, things like that. Hmm. Um, it's hard. It's a hard one to get right that because, of course, sometimes you have this potential to alienate others by including others and et cetera, et cetera. It's hard. But, um, I, I always wonder when, when this kind of stuff's brought up. I know a yeah. lot of companies have referral programs for getting recommendations of new staff or yeah. potential, potential staff. But I often wonder, is that does that make it worse? Like is that simply getting more people like the same people that are already there? This is uh, an interesting point actually that I have heard made. Mm. Um, actually in terms of recruiting, we, let's, let's move on to our second. I'm going to jump a little bit in the order because you've just brought up a very nice okay. link to one of the next articles which we could talk about kind of recruiting and inclusiveness and training and things like that. And this is an article from The Guardian from a couple of weeks ago called Tech's Push to Teach Coding Isn't About Kids' Success, It's About Cutting Wages. And hmm. I guess we could potentially apply this to um, Tech's Push to Teaching Coding across the board to all beginners, not just children. Um, and I suppose this is this is something I personally find interesting because as someone who's been kind of involved in technology for a while – I have been an exclusive resource for a long time mm -hmm. and now I see more and more people coming on board and one of the thoughts at the back of my head is does that mean I'm going to become less exclusive and less desirable? Mm -hmm. And this is an interesting article from um, a, a journalist at The Guardian called Ben Tarnoff uh, who takes a, a somewhat sceptical but maybe realistic look at that in that saying that by flooding the market with uh, – new recruits, be that children who are entering the workforce in sort of five to ten years or be that um, new learners, are we actually – is the intention actually to make all these expensive engineers worthless? <laughs> so, and, uh, yeah, what do you think about this one, Kate? I found this kind of an interesting perspective. 
It's a strange perspective. I mean, anyone needs to look at perhaps the area of, you know, your slightly more advanced tech or future tech, and there's a significant skill shortage. People are crying out for skills in IoT, in AI, in machine learning, all these kind of areas. So the idea that there's not enough um, money for these valued positions and the, um, you know, the skills will be watered down by passing them on to children and stuff just seems really strange. <laughs> it's not watering them down. It's about it's about reducing the – so, you know, it's a whole aspect of supply and demand. Yeah, okay. The more something is in demand and as it's, it's in little supply, the more valuable it is. Whereas if you make the more supply of the demand, yes, you can fill those vacancies, but you can also uh, – but if, if at the moment there's two people – for each vacancy, mm. then those two people can demand a bigger cut, mm. a bigger wage. If there are 20 people going for the same vacancy, it means actually that they are less desirable as well and thus their potential to negotiate wages is also um, lower. I don't know. I find this quite interesting. It's sort of... You know You know what? The yeah. one thing that comes to mind, I can think of a couple of things. I mean, one... I have never been to any tech event in Berlin where there's not someone asking um, for staff. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, whether there is averters putting it during question time, wearing a T-shirt, look, saying I'm looking for staff, you know, putting on their social media. I guess secondly, is it kind of getting us in a space where we're preparing for some some roles or some tasks in some roles to be taken over by AI? Well, I think this is a subject we're going to revisit a little bit later in the episode. Let's continue on this kind of recruiting angle for Mm. now and we'll revisit that topic. So let's um, come to our third article in this kind of section. And this was um, an insider's take on the future of coding boot camps. Now, this is something I've written a few articles recently Mm. around the validity of uh, and the value, yeah, the value of coding boot camps, sort of based off the back of the fact that uh, two of the original and larger ones closed mm. recently. Um, and again, I've heard from lots of people from student perspective, but also from uh, potential employer perspective, saying that lots of people coming out of coding boot camps, they have no real chance of a job. Yeah, I've heard this because too. they don't really know what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, just knowing knowledge isn't enough. Uh, yeah. they have no skills about working in teams and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. Um, yeah, and it's it's an article that looks at how people are trying to. I guess it's the second generation of the the, the coding boot camps, um, and and how how we can fix that issue and make the current ones more viable but also make the students that come out of them more viable. Yeah, I mean, a couple of thoughts I always have when I think of this area is, one, I know there's a number of your your kind of millennial entrepreneurs who push this idea of, hey, you don't need to go to university, you can just go mm-hmm. to coding school or go to a coding boot camp. And secondly, the idea that um, the for people in the change of career stage of their lives, which will be most of us, if not all of us, if you look at the idea now that statistically in the next, you know, 50 years, uh, people will have more than four or five careers in their lifetime. Uh, people who've already got perhaps that workplace acumen where they know how to work in teams, they know how to deal with office politics, they've got social etiquette, blah, blah, blah. Um and they're able to expand their skill set by learning something like programming. 
um, are they in a position where they'll be able to be eligible for these roles? Or will we still have this kind of idea of the, you know, the young graduate um, who's done their Bachelor of Engineering as the um, the only person to kind of, you know, the, the young hungry person is the only way to get in? Mm. I don't know. This is it's it's an interesting perspective. Actually, one thing we didn't include in the uh, the articles for this episode, mm. but just popped up on my kind of radar yesterday, was the whole other side of this of this now backlash against inclusiveness in tech. I mean, it's I wouldn't even say that the the uh, the battle was won, and already uh, the enemy is at the gates saying we've had enough, <laughs> uh, and this whole kind of yeah, you know, this is always the issue when you try to bring more people into something, then the people who are already there start to say, well, hang on a minute, we were here first, mm. we, uh, you know, and yeah. I don't know. I, I, guess, yeah, I, I, guess I, I do get a little bit amused when rich white men are talking about how they're being underrepresented and they're oppressed and how they don't have positions of power because you could look at any sector of, of society and find them in a pretty high position most of the yeah, time, historically yeah. and um, currently. But uh, let's let's round off this little section on kind of, I don't know, what are we calling this? The kind of recruitment in tech, mm. the training and training and recruitment in tech, Training and recruitment, say. that's a good title, yeah. All right, that's that little section. Let's close off this little section. Sure. Any, any closing thoughts, Kate, or happy to end up I think we'll move it on. We've got more okay. to talk about. We have. Okay, we're going to talk a little bit now about the ethics of technology, which is a topic certainly close to my heart. Um, and you may have heard recently the um, scenario of a um, AI use of application by researchers at Stanford University that they could go through hundreds of thousands of images of people from a dating website and determine who was straight or gay by looking at them. Mm. And it's, you know, it's pretty horrific when you think about it on, um, you know, on thought alone, just by thinking of the idea of this. But it's worth pulling this apart. I mean, firstly, we're talking about a piece of research that, that wouldn't have got through pretty much any ethics committee ever. It's extremely badly, badly flawed. Um, it really uh, fails to think of the shades of grey in life, like bisexual people and people that are... Uh, sexuality fluid or what have you um secondly it's um the aim of it according to the authors was to show um or to demonstrate a, a sense of alarm um about the dangers of ai yet there's no demonstration that you know there's any valid validity in the actual piece of research secondly the research looked at one subset of people which was white um white people as opposed to other ethnic groups um and and I look the other thing that comes to mind when I look at a lot of this kind of facial recognition hysteria is these concepts are not new. These kinds of ideas of being able to um, look at physio physiognomy, I think that's how you say it. I have to think back to my old criminology days, um, where you know the idea is that by having particular characteristics in our face or our head, we would be able to be more apt towards criminality. Oh, um, phrenology. No, physi physiognomy no. is the name. Okay, all right. Um, anyway, sorry. From memory, all <laughs> um, that we would, you know, there were there were precursors by our physical appearance that would be able to make us identifiable in certain ways. And look, it's. 
it's really quite ridiculous. There's no truth to any of this stuff. Um, the paper's been... I mean, firstly, let's, there's two things here. Firstly, the whole idea of this type of research has been brought into question by the, you know, all of the kind of um, alliances and equity associations to do with sexual orientation and sexual identity. They've all just said this is, you know, why are we even talking about this? And secondly, um, people have questioned the validity of the research. And there's actually some, you know, some responses to this to this report that really just bring it into question. That um, So yeah. you, you said a lot of things that um, I already uh, I agree with you. I actually, to be honest with you, I didn't pick up on the fact that um, the researchers claimed this was an intentional um, project to get people's attention because – so my, my perspectives were slightly different from yours. Okay. And you actually uh, you actually um, opened my eyes to a, a couple of uh, things I hadn't thought about. Um, but for me, my, I guess my perspective was this continuing aspect of uh, technical people creating things for the sake of creating things without thinking about the repercussions. Um, and this jumped out at me as one of those immediately. It's like, hey, we can make an AI that can detect gay people. And it's like, just because you can do that doesn't mean you should. <laughs> well, let's take that back um, a step, and I, though. And I didn't realise maybe that this was intentionally controversial. But... Mm. Go on, you were going to oh, say. Sorry, yeah, let's take it back a step. I mean, this was at a university, um, mm. a leading research university, where this kind of research usually has to go through ethics committees. So mm. these, you know, those committees, I know my my mother used to sit on one for um, mental health when there were any um, uh, ethics decisions to be made about using the, um, you know, subjects that had mental illness or anything like that. Um, They're highly, you know, they're highly regulated stuff. And, you know, I think this was a fairly, like for this to be done with any great rigidity of, um, from a social science perspective, um, it would, it would, take a very long-term sociological kind of study. This was a very quick kind of kind mm. of idea. And it's, like I said, this is not new kind of science. This is really, really old science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yep. That they're just playing around with again because they can do it on a computer now. Yeah. And actually, so the other aspect of this for me, which you already said, the ethics was the whole thing around... Um, so... This is actually, so this is going to lead. This is a little bit of a, a, a plug for something Kate and I are doing on Friday, Friday the thirteenth. Oh yes, at, Friday um, the thirteenth. <laughs> there is there is relevance to this. It's on there Friday is. the thirteenth at uh, fourteen hundred GMT minus four. So fourteen hundred. I don't know. I'm trying to think. Okay, I'm just going to say we will it's list a, the times. It's, a, it's at eight. It's at eight p.m. Central European time, and Americans can just figure it out. <laughs> it's, 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 yeah, I think it's like midday Pacific time or something like that. Anyway, Kate and I are doing a SmackDown uh, on DZone, uh, one of the sites we write for, about will AI take our jobs or enhance them? And one of the points that um, we bring up in that is this bias of AI. Whereas on one side, lots of technology people say, well, AI is unbiased. And yes, AI is unbiased, but it AI is unbiased because it has no real opinions, 
but the people who program it are biased, whether That's they right. realise it or not. Yeah, okay. And this is kind of feeds into what you were saying mm. um, a minute ago about uh, if, even if you don't realise it, if you are straight white men coding a tool like this, you are going to have biases. You don't have to be homosexual or anything. Sorry, you don't have to be homosexual or you don't have to be... Um, um, I've forgotten the word now for people who don't like gay people. Um, homophobic? You don't have to be homo, homosexual or homophobic to have any kind of subconscious biases around this particular subject um, to introduce them without even realising. Um, and I think that's kind of the whole other aspect of this is that, fine, if there is a valid use case for making an AI that can detect if someone is gay or not, great. Okay, I, I can't think of what this use case would be, but maybe there is. But if you're going to do that, then you should make sure, damn make sure that it's been tested and checked by people from various different backgrounds to bring other nuances into it. Even talking unethically, even, sorry, even ignoring the ethics. You know, if this thing is made by straight white men, maybe straight white men are just not very good at knowing, <laughs> knowing a gay person and homosexual people or bi people from various ethnic backgrounds can just make the tool more accurate even, you know, even ignoring the ethics. <laughs> you know, it's just mm. if you're going to get into this kind of these aspects I'm of AI, sure. you bring lots of your own biases. I'm talking purely pragmatically here just about you bring your subconscious biases and you have to make sure that other people are also brought in so they also bring in their own subconscious biases. But at least if you get all everyone's subconscious biases together, you have a you have a more broad set of biases. Yeah. Look, I, I think the fear of a lot of people is the actual use cases. The idea that you have you know, we do have larger parts of the world where homosexuality and bisexuality and what have you are illegal and people get tortured to death. And the idea that someone could go through a stack of photos at an event or on Facebook and choose who they think is gay, whether they're gay or not, um, based on an app or based on a highly inaccurate piece of um, pseudoscience um, is extremely problematic. Yeah. Or it's, reject you at a border because your passport photo looks gay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're talking yeah. about things like the shape of someone's jaw. Yeah. Ridiculous yeah. things. Yeah. And look through your history. This is... this was common not that long ago. That's right. Anyway, let's move on from this topic into a slightly different ethical discussion. Uh, maybe you want to tell us what this topic is, Kate. Okay, this one is actually an article from um, The Guardian and it's on the whole issue of um, could lab-grown fish and meat feed the world without killing a single animal? Mm. And I know this is an issue that is spoken about widely in um, – ag tech circles, the idea of the food scarcity of the future, the idea that we simply can't make enough food, let alone using food or, you know, biodegradables for fueling our cars or what have you, but literally not having enough food to grow, to be able to feed a populace. Mm. I mean, I find this interesting. Like, let's not, let's ignore the whole conversation around whether we actually need as much meat as we think we need. I personally feel like the meat industry has done a very good marketing campaign making us think we need far more meat than we actually do. Let's just ignore that for now. We do need some meat to ideally, or we need some protein and meat does it most efficiently. We don't need as much as we think, but we do need yeah. some. But then let's look at the aspect of um, animal suffering, um, and 
unbelievable cruelty, fall of that meat, and then the pure environmental impact. Now, I think for the short term, the environmental impact of lab-grown meat is going to be high. That will get better. That will get better. Um, and it's going to be damn expensive for a while yet. Yeah, uh, well, if it's, it's not even available, but if, when it is, it will be expensive. But let's move beyond those. And so we took a quick poll of uh, our friends on Facebook, that very uh, good tool <laughs> <laughs> for taking polls, on uh, friends of ours who um, would eat this or not. Um, some were used to be vegetarian. Some were vegetarian. Uh, we didn't hear from any of our more kind of hardcore vegan friends mm. around this. I think they were so horrified they decided Maybe. not to um, be yeah, involved. I mean, uh, would, okay, Kate, if you were vegetarian, mm. I mean, both of us have been vegetarian and vegan in the past. Yep, correct. So we have an element of uh, experience to draw upon. Would Do you consider lab-grown meat to have come from an animal? Yes, because it's come from cells at some level. All right, all right, but they—that's that's a fair point. But it came from an animal a very long time ago, in theory. But that would be the argument. True. So, would you eat it if you were vegetarian? I'm not vegetarian, so I don't know. If you were, would you eat it? If I was a pure vegetarian, no. Okay. 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 So interestingly, you heard you have different opinions from some of the other people we spoke to. Actually, some of the other vegetarians said they would because they don't consider it meat. I guess it, it depends on your reasons for not eating meat. If it's animal cruelty, then there is very little animal cruelty in 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 this. If it's environmental impact, then as I say, for the mm. short term, that's probably going to be pretty similar. In the long that's term, true. it's probably going to be better. Yeah, but that's in the long term. But I don't know. I I find it quite fascinating. I mean, we we already eat lots of vegetables that are genetically modified, and that's we true. already eat meat that is genetically modified. It's just taking it to the logical conclusion, I suppose. Mm, mm. Yeah, I don't know. I find it's, it interesting. Yeah, and I mean, it's certainly some of the ideas are very, are very interesting. Like, apparently, Winston Churchill in, the, in 1932 said or wrote, "We shall escape the absurdity of growing a whole chicken in order to eat the breast or wing by growing mm. these parts separately under a suitable medium." So mm. it's not a new idea, you know. No, no, no. And it's ex- it's kind of exciting that you know this could be made to happen. I mean, we. We've come across quite a few um, biotech companies working on the edible insects and these mm. kind of areas, which are, you know, they're a great novelty product um, for us as as Westerners who have the luxury of being able to afford other food. But you could imagine them in, you know, your more developed areas who, I might add, have been eating insects and other mm. types of similar products for ever, <laughs> you know. So to close this out, um, actually, just on a tangent there, so Switzerland has now made insects in supermarkets uh, yeah, legal, which is that's interesting. that's right. That's great. But that's a, that's a whole other conversation to take our catchphrase. But just to summarize here, interestingly, so uh, in this article in The Guardian, they said each tiny croquet of – croquet of what? I can't quite it's, remember. Yeah, I've got it open. It's – Fish it's fish. It's twenty five percent fish. It's cultured, okay. cultured okay. carp croquets. So each tiny croquet costs two hundred dollars, working out at about nineteen thousand dollars per pound. Mm. So of course this is not affordable anytime soon. But all technologies start out expensive, and then somewhere along the way, 
uh, become more affordable. I think this is going to be the future. I think it's going to be yeah. insects and lab grown meat. I agree, especially uh, beef and the yeah. dairy industry. It's just yeah. not sustainable. Yeah, not I mean, it actually does say such is the speed of technology, exactly. te- technological advance that they've already slashed that by more than half. Yeah. So it is getting cheaper. Yeah. I mean, this is one 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 venture. There are others. So you know. Well, interesting. We would like to hear from you, dear listeners. You can go to our podcast page to find ways of getting in touch with us. Would you eat lab-grown meat or fish? Or Yeah, we'd like to hear from you. All right. Now we are going to get ourselves in a high-end motor car and career through the streets of London. No, that, that doesn't happen. Uh, I'm pretty sure you can walk fast on the streets of London. But this <laughs> is about Uber now. Uh, Uber recently had their license put in question in London. I'm going to be very specific here because there was a lot of misreporting on this subject. There was. And this is what this article on uh, LondonReconnections.com, a website primarily about transport news, <laughs> which I wouldn't normally read, but Uber kind of crosses the, the, the areas here, um, about the actual story. And there's a lot of very interesting things in this article, and I really highly recommend that people read it. Talking about a couple of things in that a lot of uh, news outlets said, oh, the app is banned. When this article points out very clearly it's nothing to do with an app. The app is just uh, an interface. It's actually about – and also the other aspect that a lot of people got wrong was that uh, that Uber had had their license revoked. They hadn't actually had their license revoked. Their license was up for renewal and the Transport for London, TfL, wanted them to change some things before they – renewed it that's basically it and they could still operate until that period is up the uber is not banned in london the uber is under review uh, and london is a very um progressive pro-business city so they tend to be fairly pragmatic in these sorts of things but it's a very interesting article because it digs hmm. very much firstly into the structure of uber um because uh, uber is basically in europe a dutch company with lots of subsidiaries around Europe. So you're not actually dealing with Uber. You're sort of dealing with a oh, multitude of different um, companies. A subsidiary. So in London, yeah, in, in London, it's Uber London Limited. Mm-hmm. That is actually a subsidiary of Uber yeah. BV, which is yeah. actually no probably a subsidiary of Uber Incorporated yeah. or whatever. Okay. So there's that aspect of it. Um, and there are a minicab firm, like yeah. many other companies in London, so they are subject to exactly the same regulations that other minicab firms in London are, like Addison Lee being the most famous one, who I used to use a lot when I lived in London. So they are, they're not operating in a different space, actually. They're operating in the same space as many other private car hire companies in London. Um, and also it points out very, very clearly that Transport for London has, is not friends with the taxi industry. The taxi industry has a lot of issues with Transport for London, so there's no favouritism there. Um, yeah, it's a very fascinating article. It's quite a long read, but um, it actually really is very pragmatic about the whole reasons behind the London decision, but also some of the justifications through some other companies as well, uh, so some other countries as well. And, I mean, I find the whole thing interesting because um, – one of the facts that's come up a lot recently in, with regards to Uber, they're obviously trying to change or attempting to change the way they're perceived in the world. But one of the very interesting aspects is apparently that 
they are operating completely at a loss all the time. Mm-hmm. Every single ride, pretty much every single Uber is running at a loss. Yeah. So I, I sort of, you know, whatever you think about the ethical aspects, I'm just wondering, like, how as a business will they continue? <laughs> when, when and how will they even become profitable? Um, you that's could ask this of- about many startups, really. True, but many have a kind of business perspective that at some – I don't know. It's always the argument a tipping of scale. Point. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It's interesting. Did you get a chance to read this, Kate? I did. Just, I did. Uh, I mean I have a different perspective on Uber than some because coming from Australia where we do have Uber, um, historically the Australian taxi system is very poor. Um, mm. It's quite common that you will need to ask them where to go like give them directions to go to very public well, public places like the airport. There's also significant problems with for women with sexual harassment and sexual assaults within taxis, um, mm. including mm. myself, unfortunately. And by comparison to us in Australia, Uber was seen as a better version. They had cameras in the ca- in the cars. They had um, a clear dispute, at least what we thought a clear dispute resolution process for complaints by customers. Um, They had, uh, you know, well, taxi drivers had, or the Uber drivers had showers, (laughs) so they didn't smell, all this kind of stuff. And you felt felt a lot safer as a passenger, as Mm. a female passenger. I mean, I'm not suggesting this is the case everywhere in the world, but at least in Australia where I lived, this was the case. And now mm. I live in Germany, of course, where we have no Uber at all. Whatever your opinions on Uber, I highly recommend you have a read of this article. It's quite long, but that's not always a bad thing because it gives you the opportunity to dig into the facts and dig yeah. behind some of the facts and some of the history that's true. into the company setup and all sorts of things. But also just in some respects has a bit of a go at some of the kind of mainstream journalism that just gave a very um, – a very – passing glance at the news without actually looking at any great detail so yeah that's a good point okay now secondly in this kind of miscellaneous <laughs> section uh, this is an article that jumped out at me for various reasons on the ringer mm. called can tech startups do journalism um and i found this interesting uh, actually, when I shared this article amongst my network, I think everyone replied saying no without really reading it in any great mm. detail because what I found interesting about this – so this article is about how this kind of field of content marketing, this field where a lot of uh, Silicon Valley companies especially have kind of eschewed traditional advertising mm. and marketing to do this kind of um, sub – sometimes sometimes sub-brand and it is in these examples – of like a magazine. Storytelling, where, yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting because often it's just – it's kind of this sort of thought piece, think piece leadership space that brings people to a company without it being particularly in their face um, and it's kind of more subtle. And I know I've seen this work in other fields like when yeah, you do talks likewise. at conferences, when you go to meetups. Definitely. This kind of stuff, you just get around Mm. and you become respected 
And by virtue of you being a person who's respected and attached to a company, people then look at the company. Mm-hmm. And the reason I also find this interesting is like the, the, uh, the companies in this piece kind of took it a few steps further. But Kate and I, we have both had a lot of work recently in this similar field yeah. where we're asked to write articles for companies' blogs. Yep. And the the thing I find interesting about our experiences but also the companies in this article is we have – I have I have never been told I have to write about a particular topic or have to uh, promote the person paying me in any particular way. And this is one thing I find interesting because mm. when was the last time a journalist could honestly say that was the case? That's not my Even, experience. Really? Okay. No. It has been my experience. Even in the golden era of media, there was an agenda set sometimes by advertisers and backers. Um, and this is why I find this interesting because actually my experience and the experience in, of the writers in this article, and I'd be interested to hear your experiences in one second, um, was that it was very independent. Um, so I didn't necessarily see anything wrong with it. But So what are your experiences been in this field then? Yeah, well, you know, if you're writing a blog – for a company that, um, you know, I was working for a, a, a sensor company, for example, writing about their IoT. Uh, they wanted topical articles on things that they thought would interest their readers, but they also wanted to draw them back to their own technology. So... Uh, okay, okay, okay. You had Can to I mention just... the company a certain number of times. Um, but, okay. You had to Can link I ask to you a question? Can I ask you a question here, Kate? Okay, this is interesting. Firstly, you've already said one thing that jumped... Two things that jumped out at me. Okay. One was that you said you had to mention it several times. That yeah. was That's never been my own personal experience, so I find that interesting. Mm. I usually maybe mentioned it once, and even then that was at my suggestion, actually. But the um, the... Could... How did you have to mention them? Oh, look, you know, to be fair, I actually would try quite hard to make sure it was very relevant to the article because they were working in the future tech space of not having produced or deployed their first product to the market beyond a, you know, a smallish crowdfunding campaign. You could do a lot of speculation. So I could could draw in a topic, like say I wanted to write about something like – smart cities and the use of citizen science as a way to involve the citizens in measuring, um, you know, measuring parts of the city and therefore getting involved in the, um, what, what was decided by the, um, I don't know, by the city and how they'd prioritize smart city applications and, mm. and all that sort of stuff. So I might say, well, actually, you know, this product X would work well for this because these are some use cases where they could be involved. Mm. Mm. So to be fair, you know, I, I think I, I, I did it credibly, but it was something I kind of had to learn to do because okay. it's, it doesn't yeah. come naturally when you're used yeah. to writing uh, not for a commercial audience. But that said, I mean, I did apply for a number of jobs uh, at, at different times where, and this is particularly notorious for your less um, – your lower paid copywriting, where, for example, um, a company that makes uh, the connecting cords that connect, I don't know, your TV to your stereo, for example, would want you to write something on the top 10 women in tech and somehow Mm. put the cord in there as well. Yeah, okay. I think (laughs) that's, uh, yeah. Some of them are pretty tenuous. Some are more tenuous than others. 
Um, but I mean, you know, look, the, the article you're referring to, I actually quite liked it because I think mm. it, it raised a number of issues that I'm coming across in my work literally at the moment, which are that um, people want independent media or they want where they would like to think that the journalists are paid, the staff are paid, you know, blah, blah, blah. They don't want, they don't want too much um, advertising because they're sick of that. But they they um, don't want to pay for it either. Yeah. And I think, you know, what this raises is this bigger issue of, well, how, do, how, is, how are we expected to have a free media in both senses of the word when people don't want to pay for it and they don't want to be subject to any type of advertising, whether it's advertorial or it's... Um, you know, sponsorship or it's some some other mechanism. This is the the, the greater issue. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I recommend you have read the article. I personally don't have any issue with this kind of trend. I mean, from personal interest, it's been quite advantageous mm. to me, I guess. But also, um, as long as the writers are mostly are relatively independent, a lot of the journalists. I know personally, again from personal experience, but also in this article, say they were paid quite well. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's not so wrong. And also, for example, like in-flight magazines and things have been doing this same model for quite a That's long true. time. Um, well, look, you yeah, know, like, like we... Promoting the field without promoting themselves explicitly all the time. But yeah. like we've both said, it's not unusual for a um, someone who advertises in, in the media, a particular medium, for example, like a, say it's a magazine, to therefore be featured in the articles. This is the mm. way the world works. Mm. This is not exactly. new. It's simply a twist on it. So let's let's wrap up this episode, Kate. We've talked about a few different things here. Um, let's quickly talk about what we've been writing, what we've been up to over the past two weeks and what's coming up. Do you want to kick off? Sure. I'll um, just do a quick update on what I've been up to. Writing has been busy, but um, my probably my most uh, notable writing of, of late that might amuse or entertain is um, The Internet of Beer. So I did a little foray into house. Even drink beer. No, I don't. But um, given we had Oktoberfest here in Deutschland, I wanted to see how. Which I actually went to. I actually went to Oktoberfest. He did. He did. <laughs> how sensor technology and IoT is being used when it comes to beer, and it's in all kinds of weird, weird and wonderful ways, from monitoring if the kegs have been damaged during transit or left in the sun, to monitoring um, and and reordering beer from the taps. Uh, things a lot of DIY home brewing kind of applications, both um, commercial and DIY, using Raspberry Pis and stuff like that. Um, some super interesting stuff. Uh, in regard to events, probably our most notable event would be a trip to uh, Lviv. Thank you. Ukraine. Said mental blank man. Lviv, Ukraine. Trip to Lviv, Ukraine. And I think we're still writing. I actually started writing my article on it today yeah. i haven't but it was interesting we went to a conference there we met a lot of people working kind of in outsourcing areas but we met a few startup people um i think we will say we will summarize before we maybe cover it off properly when we've both written our articles in early days interesting a little bit scrappy and chaotic yeah it's kind of a good summary i think <laughs> <laughs> but certainly, like like any type of travel, you gain an appreciation to the challenges of living somewhere that's exactly. not in, you know, 
the Central West, if you like to call yeah. it that, you know, America, England, right. um, Central Europe. And uh, for me, I've written a couple of things since our last podcast. Podcast? Podcast. Uh, I don't know what a podcast is, but I wouldn't <laughs> mind going there. It sounds kind of fun. Uh, these, both of these probably popped up as interviews on the podcast feed. Sure. I spoke to Thierry Carrez or Thierry Carré, I'm not sure, he's French, on the release of OpenStack Pike, which was interesting. Actually, the most interesting thing I found with, with interviewing him was just because they have such a large amount of contributors from so many different places and just how they balance all the various agendas and cultures and things I found quite interesting. Um, and secondly, I spoke to a couple of vice presidents at Canonical, company behind Ubuntu, about Ubuntu Core and Snaps, the kind of whole um, reason for their existence and their whole strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's actually, we've sort of had, uh, I think we're still wait, both waiting for a lot of things to be published. Yeah. Uh, so in the next couple of weeks, so as we already mentioned, we are both taking part in a D-Zone Smackdown. We are. Friday the 13th. We'll put a link to it in the show notes where we will be taking two sides of the discussion of will I, will I, will I, will I, will I take our jobs? <laughs> will AI take our jobs Very or enhance true. them? And to be honest with you, we both kind of agree with each other. We try to figure out the best way we're going to try and disagree with each other. But you can tune in. Uh, live to uh, see how we go with that. Yeah, we aim to have some interesting use cases. We aim to make you think about some things you might not have thought about. And we aim to entertain. So, you know, we may not be uh, necessarily voicing our personal opinions, but we will certainly be able to give you plenty of food for thought. And with other trips, Kate, tomorrow you are I, – I, I think the podcast will come out whilst you're still there. Yeah. You will be in Yo Yike Shady. Correct, for a um, Dell event actually. I think that was Chicago, but that makes Yeah, sense. did sell at New York. Yo Yike. <laughs> I don't know. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> it's Yo Yike. That's how they all sound, Kate. Um, okay. But then after that, we are both then off again – um, I'm not 100% sure if there will have been a podcast episode, so we'll mention it just in case. We are both going on the um, 18th of October to the 22nd of October to Belgrade. We'll be at Vox Days in Belgrade. Yep. Um, I'm doing a talk actually around similar themes to what we've been talking about here, yeah. the kind of ethics behind coding and things like that. Um, and then I am then off to on the 22nd to the 25th to Zagreb to do the same talk. So if you are Balkan-based, um, I think Vox to Belgrade has actually sold out. Um, but uh, I think ChangeCon in Zagreb with tickets still available. Um, so, yeah, there's a few places you can come and meet us over the next few weeks. Yes, indeed. And, um, yeah, watch this space. We've both been doing a lot of sort of private writing recently, uh, mm. which we will populate our website with at some point. But... Just a you know, little bit of a plug there. If you want to support the podcast, you can support the podcast by going to gregarismammal.com slash podcast, or you could employ us for work. Yes, you can. <laughs> um, yes, I, I may have some openings coming up. And uh, yeah, you can also find previous episodes at gregarismammal.com slash podcast. Um, future interviews coming up, I think we are going to be having – uh, an interview at the end of this month. Uh, it may just be me and a person called Ryan Blundell, or it may be all three of us. I'm not 100% sure yet. 
where we're going to have him live. He's actually from Australia, but he's in Berlin. Ah. We're going to have him live, having a bit of a discussion roundtable around the correlations between programming and music. So something a little mm-hmm. different there. And, um, yeah, up until those points, Kate, how can the good listeners find out more about you? Oh, I think you can pop over to Twitter, good old Twitter, um, because I have my links to my other sources there. Um, my name on Twitter is at Kate underscore Lawrence. That's Kate with a C, Lawrence with a W. And you can also find Kate at katelawrence.com. Same spellings, no underscore, no at either. And you can find me on the Twitters. You can find me Facebooking on the Twitters at at Chris Chinch. And you can also find me at chrischinchilla.com. Please, if you have any comments or feedback, jump on gregorismammal.com slash podcast and let us know. Yep. And until then, we will see you again soon. Take care, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.